Yes, good morning, church. It's a beautiful day. We worship our Lord and King together on this beautiful May day. Uh, do we happen to have anyone amongst us who's 74 years or older, if you don't mind raising your hand? 74 years and older. All right, fantastic. Yesterday was the 74th birthday of the nation of Israel. Yeah. May 14, 1948. So for those of you that are in 74 and older, we commend you. Thank you. And uh, really looking forward to the wisdom that you will pour into this body yes. and the joy it is uh, to have you amongst us as wonderful witnesses of the, uh, the goodness of God and the grace of God and your faithfulness and steadfastness uh, as you walk with him. Um, really, that, that the reality of the nation of Israel being in existence uh, and continuing to be in existence is probably one of the greatest and best proofs for the existence of God. Time after time, there's been attempts to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, but yet, they're still here. They're thriving. They have turned that sliver of, of desert into a thriving green and metropolis in the Midwest. Or mid- Middle East, not the Midwest. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, my, my, my mind and sleight of heart is in the Midwest, where I'm from in Wisconsin, so sorry. <laughs> Israel's not in the Midwest. It's in the Middle East. <laughs> uh, how many of you were with us 329 days ago? <laughs> yes, that is when we first started First Samuel. 329 days ago. The adventure that we've had in this book, and man, it's really kind of hard to comprehend that we've been doing it that long. And it's really, it's bittersweet, really. I mean, this this book uh, has been beautifully, has been wonderfully kept for us throughout time, uh, revealing truths about who God is and his character, what he's done, how he's interacted with his people of Israel in particular, that shows his steadfastness and his goodness. Um... This chapter that we're going to be looking at, the last chapter of 1 Samuel, deals with the death of King Saul in very graphic detail. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we skipped it off of Mother's Day, because we didn't seem to be the best sermon to talk about the king of Israel getting his head chopped off, hung up on a wall. I uh, didn't think that was very fitting. So Joe did a very wonderful job talking about Ruth uh, and reminding us of Ruth, because... Um, this has all been part, this whole series I've been going through has been talking about um, us becoming, as a community of faith, becoming more of aware of what's in God's Word. Trying to become, helping us become more um, biblically literate so we can understand these truths, these realities about who God is, how He has worked, and how He will work. So that's all that to say. Uh, that's all free. That's all the intro part. All right. So before we begin to look at chapter 31, uh, I wanted to provide, try to provide us with a bit of context to aid us in understanding what's happening. Because if you were to just to start reading chapter, chapter 31, verse 1, uh, you might get lost in the whole conundrum and, and not understanding where it all lines up. So a bit of context here. So this narrative, and I want us to it would be encourage us to use when we talk about scripture as a narrative, that it's not just a book of stories, right? Stories are stories, sorry for your little kids, you can you know, close your ears. Stories about Santa Claus, you know, those aren't real. Fairies aren't real. 
These are all stories, and our current culture really is trying to hijack the idea that this is just a bunch of stories. This book is, captures so many different elements in it, and one of the elements that we have is a narrative. It's a record of historical events that took place in time and space in a particular place, namely in Israel, as it relates to chapter 31. And so when we start this, looking at chapter 31, we want to remind ourselves where we left off, right? In chapter 30, in Samuel, we are presented with a very interesting uh, scenario. Two weeks ago, we ended that chapter, and recall that it was a battle that David had in attacking the Amalekites, who attacked his home down in Ziklag, burned it all down, took all the wives and children, and took off. And then David went out and attacked the Amalekites, returning and capturing, bringing back, rescuing his wives and children, and then sending out the spoils of war throughout the land. And that's where we ended chapter 30. Our passage, our chapter here in 31, is presenting us a simultaneous event that is taking place. So it's a continuation, really, if we kind of try to step back in the Wayback Machine, looking back at chapter 28 and chapter 29. For this is the context of the record of events that we have here in chapter 31. All with me? Yeah. Make sense? Okay. So chapter 29, 28, verse 1 says, In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. Chapter 29, verse 4 and 5 says, The Philistines assembled, came, and encamped at Shuman. And Saul gathered all of Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. So to give us a kind of a visual picture, because I'm a visual learner, and hopefully that will help aid us in understanding this passage we have this wonderful map in the back. You might be able to hard to see all the letters in the way back, but hopefully it gives us some kind of clue of what we're looking at. What was it? Yay, maps. Yay, maps. Okay. <laughs> this is not a geography lesson, first off. <laughs> what we're trying to get is an understanding, a, a broader, better context, a picture of what we're reading in Scripture that help us understand what's going, place, going on. So here we are looking directly in the middle of Israel. Um, the red squiggly line is the River Jordan. Right above that is the Sea of Galilee, or the Lake of Galilee. And then if you were to kind of go way over, we don't have it in the map, but in your far, far west side, you would have the Mediterranean Sea. So here, right in the middle, is where this whole event is, is taking place. The orange blob in the middle, that is where the Philistine army is encamped in Shuman. The yellow blob down below, that's Mount Gilboa. That is where the Israelite army is set up. Less than eight miles separate them between that valley. So it's very close. Everything in Israel is so close because it's so tiny. 80 miles max at its width, 300 miles north and south. So it's, it's, it's way very, very small. There, again, the red squiggly lines of Jordan. The green dot, which we'll get to in our narrative a little bit later, that's Beit Shan. And then for those of you who like extra credit, uh, the blue dot way above is Nazareth. That is the place where Jesus, Christ of Nazareth, is from. So all this is all looking over the Jezreel Valley, so you can see from any one of these high spots all of these mounds all around. So everything is so close to each other. So what we have is David was rescuing his wives and sharing those spoils of war. King Saul now is gearing up for this battle that we're going to read about against the Philistines which is 100 miles 
as a crow flies to the north. And this battle, this, this narrative, is reminding us of the constant conflict that Israel has had with the Philistines, right, going all the way back to the time of Joshua, when Joshua told the people that there is much land still to possess, including all regions of the Philistines. Israel is suffering still in our narrative for the lack, is suffering still for the lack of taking possession of the land that was promised to them by God. And that's where we start. This, the constant conflict between the Philistines and Israel set within the land. So what I'll do is I will, I'll read through the chapter. It's only a short 13 verses. And then we'll step through it together. So I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. So 1 Samuel chapter 31, page 298. <laughs> now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadad and Melchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him. And he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus, Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their, their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth. They fastened his body to the wall of Beit-shan. But the inhabitants of yabeth Galad heard what the Philistines had done to Saul. All the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beit-shan. And they came to Yebeth, burned them there. And they took their bones, buried them under the tamarisk tree in Yebeth, and fasted for seven days. You can see why we didn't read this narrative or preach this narrative on Mother's Day. <laughs> so let's step, now we have this in, our, in, in view. Let's step through this verse by verse and take a look at some things uh, to, See what kind of insights the Lord may be providing for us to learn from and gather from. Again, this is not just informational. Really, when we go through the Bible and, and read the scriptures, it really should be transforming. So the hope and prayer is that as we look, read the word of God, we know this is alive uh, and powerful. It shouldn't just be information and check off boxes, but really should transform us. Wanting to follow the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
So chapter, chapter, one, chapter 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. So I'll show picture number one. This is not my picture. I borrowed it from a site, if you want to know it, taking notes at home, is from BibleWalks.com. This is a really amazing site. There's a lot of pictures. helps provide visual uh, pictures and information to help us get a good understanding of these different areas. In anticipation, I'm not making a prof- prophetic statement, but anticipation of us going to Israel. I really would love to go as a church to Israel and see the Melinda and where the Zilvas are going here in, in the fall with uh, Melinda's brother's church and his group. Um, but yes, we can go to these places, all these places we read about in Scripture. You can see them and touch them and, and grab the dirt. And you can see, oh yes, I'm on Mount Gilboa. Grab the dirt from the land and scratch it in your Bible and say, when you read it, say, I've been there. I know what it looks like. So for those that can't make us make it there, um, we have pictures. So what we're looking at here um, is we're looking due east with Mount Gilboa right in front of us. And the ridge line in the far back, looking way out east, is the country of Jordan. So this is a truly a mount that they're on, not just a little molehill, it is a, it is a mount. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadad and Malkashua, the sons of Saul. All of this took place on top of that hill. This tragic loss of life, the tragic end of the dynasty of King Saul. His sons that have joined him in battle have been slain. Because if you read about it a little bit further on in 2 Samuel, you'll find out, oh, there's another son of Saul. What's happening with him? How come he's not in this battle? That is for another day, another time. But I encourage you to continue reading on in 2 Samuel and find out that that son, too, is killed. Spoiler alert. And it's in the book. You can read it. Verse 3. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Archaeologists have found depictions of the Philistine armies in their military array, which have, would have art, uh, infantrymen in front, chariots with men inside of it, and then the archers behind. So the idea we think here is that the archers from long ranges would have been releasing their arrows prior to the infantry coming up and rushing up that hill against the men of Israel. Tragic end. The archers found him. Most likely, what what it means is that they pinpointed their target. King Saul is now impaled with arrows sticking through him. But the text here has no record of Saul crying out, to the Lord. There's no mention of Saul's repentance. There's no mention of any emotion whatsoever. Verse 4, Then Saul said to his armor bearer, and again, we're going to see comparisons that are being made all throughout this entire book. Comparisons being made between King Saul and King David. But this armor bearer here is different than the first one. The first one was, King da- was David. He was the armor bearer of Saul, who was told, we are told was loved greatly by King Saul when he made him his armor bearer back in chapter 16. But this armor bearer, King Saul, 
tells him to draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. Notice this phrase, these uncircumcised. We've seen this all throughout 1 Samuel, where they are not even calling out the names of their enemies, the Philistines, but these uncircumcised. And that carries with it so many different connotations, similar to those, these are not the people of the promise. These are ones that needed to be dealt with way back in Joshua, but they failed to. And it appears that Saul knew what could possibly be in store for him. He was very likely, uh, very familiar with that mighty man of Samson, if you recall, who was captured by the Philistines, had his eyes gouged out, and was put on display as entertainment as they feasted. He didn't want to experience that, nor any more sorrow. The entire Israeli army that was with him had fallen. His three sons have now been killed. And his last recorded words were about concern only for himself. Lest these Philistines come and mistreat me. Again, another comparison, saying that his armor bearer would not thrust his sword through him, for he feared greatly. So therefore, anytime we see that word, therefore, we want to ask, what's it there for? Well, because the armor bearer didn't thrust his sword through, Saul took his own and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw it, Saul was dead. He also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. Note what that says here, on the same day together. That should start to kind of ring in our minds that passage that's the, the narrative prior us. This is in direct fulfillment of the prophet Samuel when he came up from Sheol back in chapter 28, not less than 24 hours earlier than this event. And it's interesting to know that Saul didn't avoid this battle. He knew full well that he was going to die this day. Why would he go into battle against the Philistines? Why would he take his sons with him into battle knowing that they're going to die this day? Scripture doesn't tell us. And we shouldn't conjecture nor make up any doctrine based upon the things that Scripture is silent upon. Saul's death and the death of his three sons were because Saul consistently failed to heed the call of God. When Samuel came up from Sheol in chapter 28, verses 18 and 19, Samuel says, Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. And that has now been fulfilled. I couldn't find exactly if that's the shortest fulfillment of prophecy in Bible taking place between chapters 28 and 31, but I think it ranks uh, pretty high up there. Continuing on to uh, verse 7. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan River, saw the men of Israel had fled, what men of Israel are we reading about? What men of Israel are these? So the first part of verse 7 is that when the men of Israel who, saw, who were on the other side of the valley, let's take a look at picture number 2. 
on, when the men of Israel were on the other side of the valley. So here we have Mount Gilboa, the Valley Harad, or the Jezreel Valley up here. Mount Moriah is here. It's when these men of Israel on the other side, those not part of the battle, only about eight miles in distance between the two as the crow flies, saw, and those beyond the Jordan River saw that the men of Israel had fled. Look at picture number three. These men of Israel, here's Mount Gilboa. We have the Harad Valley and Jordan. When the, men, it, the people over there in Jordan saw this taking place and saw that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. So all this is just so close that they could see this battle taking place. The Philistines would have seen the exodus of these non-combatants across the valley, leaving their homes, thus taking their homes to live in them, occupying them until at least the next day or even longer. Because in verse 8 it says, The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons had fallen on Mount Geboa. Interesting to note that the Philistines left the bodies overnight. If we recall the statement back in 1 Samuel 17 of that oversized warrior from Gath, Goliath, who called out and says to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. This just seems like the regular process of when you defeat your enemy, you leave their bodies out to be dealt with by the elements of the world. And this is pretty, uh, probably not a very glorious sight. Obviously, war is awful. But to have bodies being left overnight, subject to the elements and to the beasts of the field. So that next day, verses 9, 9 and 10, they cut off his head. They stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news, good news, to the house of their lords, to their idols, and to their people. It says that the Philistines carried their good news to the house of their idols. What is their version of the good news? Their version of the good news is only death and destruction. It was the enemy has been finally vanquished. It was the death of the man, the king, that was proclaimed amongst their people and amongst their wooden idols. But not only that, then the Philistines decapitated King Saul. And the book of Chronicles tells us a little bit more detail what they did with his head. In 1 Chronicles 10.10 10 says, they put his armor in the temple of their gods and then fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. Remember back in 1 Samuel 5, where the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant and put it in the temple of Dagon, and ironically, the head of Dagon was cut off. And as the text says, only the trunk of Dagon was left. Probably what they're attempting to do is trying to get revenge and show, no, our gods are the one who has done this. We have the head of the king of Israel. And it's precisely this mistreatment of the corpse of Saul that he might have been thinking of and was fearful of when he fell on his own sword. And notice the continued comparisons. Again, we see this all throughout this book, that the author Samuel is not so much concerned with direct chronology, as we see here in our text, but with comparing. It's a comparison between these two individuals of King Saul 
in King David. Earlier we read that Saul, when he saw the Philistines, it said that he trembled with fear. And rather than seek the Lord for help, he broke faith in the Lord, is what the text says. And he turned to that witch in Endor. So vastly different that we see, again, in the simultaneous event that's being recorded for us, David goes back into the land of the Philistines, back in chapter 29, where it says, So David set out his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines go up to Jezreel. David is seen returning to the land of his enemies, as the Philistines are now heading up to this battle that we've read about in chapter 31. And if you recall, that's precisely this battle, that pre-setup of it, where we read about King Achish. If you recall, he said, hey, we don't want David to go with us anymore. Will you be in the back of us as we fight against Israel? That's what that event is referring to as we look back at that text. Again, all simultaneous events taking place here at the end of this book. Back in chapter 13, we see, again, another comparison. That Saul's kingdom would not last because of Saul's disobedience. Chapter 13, 14 says... But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people because you, Saul, have not kept what the Lord commanded you. An example of his disobedience, his continual disobedience, is when Saul blatantly disobeyed God when he offered that sacrifice after attacking the Malachites back in chapter 15. He directly lies to the face of the prophet Samuel, the one that was supposed to be pronouncing the words of the Lord and to be obeyed and listened to and followed through, Saul, in his response to Samuel, blatantly lies. Yet compared to David, when he is confronted with his sin of murder and adultery, you read about in 2 Samuel 12, David is repentant. He calls out, he says, I have sinned against you, Lord. Psalm 51 is all written in his response to his sins that he committed. And he says, For I know, David says, my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Again, vastly, vastly different compared to Saul's response. And in this narrative, we're shown that the Philistines fought hard with Saul all the days of his life compared with David. We're told in 2 Samuel 7, Now when the king, David, lived in his house, the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. And we could go on and on and on. There's so many comparisons, but the point is, the point that's being made is that it's between the king the people have chosen and the one that God has chosen as part of his plan for all of mankind. Seen ultimately in the one who comes in the line of David, the son of of David, the Messiah, the branch, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Going back to our text in verse 10, it says, They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth. They fastened his body to the wall of Beit Shan. Again, if we can go to Israel, we can go to Beit Shan. It is quite a marvelous site. It's a very large mound that archaeologists have discovered. And actually in it, they have found two, uh, two temples with, that would fit within the time frame of our narrative between 1007 and 1006 BC. 
that fit right within our text. So they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they then put his head in 1 Chronicles in the temple of Dagon. Again, archaeology confirming what this, what's in the text, because this is a true book. So Beit Shan, we show picture number four. The Beit Shan at the time of our narrative is that big mound in the back. Uh, what's here in front of us is actually a Roman city, uh, part of the Decapolis. It's actually quite marvelous. Uh, it's very expansive. And to kind of give you an idea, these, these are humans, uh, and these are very tall pillars, and this is the main road that would have been covered. Anyway, that's for another time and another story. Um, so Beit Chan, this is where we now get to this, where they fastened his body to the wall of Beit Chan. Must have been quite the scene to see the king's corpse, decapitated corpse, along with his three sons hanging on the wall for all to see. Verses 11 and 12 says, But when the inhabitants of Jabeth-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabeth and burned them there. Beit Shan from Yabeth Gilead is about 15 miles away. One would have had to come down from Jordan, down into the Jordan River Valley, up the hill to Beit Shan all in the night. Now, mind you, Jordan River is roughly, I don't know, I think 400 feet below sea level. Beit Shan would be about 800 feet below. So there's still quite a bit of time. Topography change. It's not an easy hike to do this at night. Now, mind you, doing that with four bodies. Why would these valiant men do this crossing of the Jordan River into Philistine territory, into the land of their enemies, to aid Israel? Much less come get the four bodies and one without the head. Well, Scripture tells us that there are some quite interesting family ties and associations within this. Going back to the book of Judges, when the tribe of Benjamin came, and you can read this story, and they, and they gained some wives from Yabeth Gilead. Recall in 1 Samuel 11, Nahash, the commander of the Ammonites in his army, besieged Yabeth Gilead and demanded their surrender. And if we recall, his conditional surrender was that he insisted they gouge out the right eye of every Israelite in that city. Of course, the elders gather together and they, they plead with Nahash and ask that, give us seven days until we, until we surrender. We're going to appeal to our brothers for help. So where do they go? They go to the tribe of Benjamin. The delegation is sent to Saul, King Saul in Gibeah. And when King Saul hears of this, if you recall, he became angry in the spirit, cut up his oxen, sent pieces of every tribe in Israel, and he warns that anyone who doesn't appear to defend Yabeth Galad, will find his oxen slaughtered as well. The Israelites, of course not wanting them to happen, show up, the scripture says, with 330,000 to go to battle and rescue the city of Yabeth Gilead. This is why these valiant men have left their home to go into an enemy territory. Verse 13 says, And they took these valiant men, they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree, and Nabeth, and fasted for seven days. It's as short as life is here on this earth. That is the life of King Saul. Forty years done and gone. 
with his bones under a tamarisk tree across the Jordan outside of the Promised Land. And his testimony, King Saul's testimony, has been kept for us so that we can learn from his life. And most importantly, not what to do. <laughs> we are not to take the grace of God for granted, and nor shall we treat it lightly. For we see time and time again, we see that Saul persisted in a sin against God. Time after time, we see that Saul was unfaithful to God. He completely disregarded his word. He failed to seek God as God had instructed him to do so in the proper manner, especially in his times of distress. And so we are called not to put off or just disregard what God, through his Holy Spirit, is doing in each one of us, what he's doing in each one of in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, those things that he is asking each one of us to deal with, those sins that we have kept in ourselves, in our minds, in our hearts, are those sins that we've justified over and over again in order to just satisfy our selfish desires. But when sin gets exposed by the Father of lights, what he will do as, ch- as his children, he will expose that sin in our life in order to bring it forth, is when it is illumined in your mind and in your heart, immediately ask him for forgiveness. Then walk in that freedom of forgiveness. We are not to play games with, nor are we to flirt with the sin in our life. That is one of the aspects of the lessons that we are to learn through the life of Saul. Because once we ask him for forgiveness, just as in Hebrews 9 talks about that, once we ask him for forgiveness, he will cleanse us our conscience. If you recall the sermon that we had a couple weeks ago, that's such an amazing, amazing thing about forgiveness that God offers us. We, ought, we present our sins, ask him for forgiveness, and he cleanses us of our consciousness, meaning that that doesn't condemn us. It doesn't hold us and break us down into less than what God has created us to be. To seek that so you can have freedom. You can. That's what it's talking about, of breaking free from the bondage of sin. That's not holding you down, not weighting you down. We are told that we are to let go of that, all that sin that entangles us so that we can run the race that's been set before us. But if we are holding on continually to those sins, my, I just want to keep it being my own, the race isn't going to be run well. And one of the things that it's talked about in Scripture, 1 John 2, There it is. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The reason why we'd be shrinking in shame from his coming is because the Holy One is coming to bring us back. And if we are so filled and beset with that sin, we won't be able to walk in confidence and won't be able without shame. Hebrews 10, 26-31, it's a passage a lot of scholars have debated upon what its meaning is, how it's actually interpreted, how it should be interpreted. 
I think the principle, irregardless of how we interpret it, is the same. Hebrews 10, 26 to 31 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sins. And the truth in this is that through our deliberate sin, that type of sin that's done with eagerness and persistence, we are rejecting the work of God. And we are left with, as the passage goes on, we are left with but a fearful expectation of judgment that's shrieking back in shame at his coming and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy in the evidence of two or three witnesses. But how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Deliberate sin, like King Saul's, is profaning the grace and mercy that's extended to God. Thus, but it is at the, at the end of this passage in uh, Hebrews 10.31, says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But there's hope. And that is the greatest and most wonderful thing about this record. There is hope that the grace of God has appeared has appeared as Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who has died on our behalf, satisfying that wrath of God, paying the penalty of judgment, which was so rightfully ours. Thereby, as Titus says in chapter 2, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and for us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Why? Because we are waiting for our blessed hope. That's the cry of Maranatha, the return of Jesus. Lord, come quickly. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So that is part of what we should be learning from, from this story, from this narrative. Ah, it's not a story. From this narrative of King Saul. To live our lives in such a way that we are reflecting the kingdom of which we are a part of. The kingdom into which we have been so graciously and lovingly been brought into, into the internal kingdom of God. And so as citizens of heaven... We are called to love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We are to encouraged, we are continually encouraged to press on as we wait the return of our Messiah. The second Peter three says, Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and all the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But, according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, that in which we will be able to live in and reside of for eternity, in which righteousness dwells. So therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him, without spot, or blemish, and at peace. 
To close with the words from our Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, as he spoke these, as he ended the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7 of Matthew, everyone who then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So encouragement to you, as we have finished to the culmination of 1 Samuel, don't live like King Saul. Live your life as a true citizen of the kingdom of heaven, pouring out everything that you have for him because he ultimately is worth it. And we want to, when we see him, not shrink back in shame. To be able to see him in confidence and welcome him as he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Because that day is coming. And it's coming soon. So until that time, our cry will be Maranatha. Amen.